Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Caroline Kavanagh. Hi, Caroline. How are you doing? I'm really well, Amy. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into the world of Caroline and what you're up to. So why don't you share what it is you're doing right now? So uh, right now, coming towards the um, the end of this year as we record this, it's that kind of really interesting phase of reflecting back what's gone well this year, what do I really want to focus on in the new year? So I'm not a a massive um, planner. I do tend to like, um, not necessarily fly by the seat of my pants, but kind of have an idea of where I'm going, but and then also kind of go, okay, well, universe, world, God, whatever it is, show me the way to get there. But I do find this is a period of time where you do kind of look back and, and say, what can I learn from what went well, what didn't went well, what didn't go well, and kind of how can that formulate and direct where we go from here? So what is it that you're focusing on? So I have kind of um, two, should we say, main eggs in my basket. My The main work that I do is working with people whose lives are being affected by anxiety. And I work with them one-to-one in a sort of therapeutic arrangement. And I absolutely adore that. It's, uh, it's you know, talking about purpose. That's my purpose is seeing people walking out my house with a bigger smile on their face than when they walked in. Uh, and that's the reason that you know I get up in the morning and do what I do. The other egg is um, along the same themes, but it's more a bit of a diversification for me that started really in the last year, 18 months or so, and that's doing public speaking. Um, and that's starting to now share a lot of the tips and techniques that I use in that therapeutic arena, but sharing them with a much wider audience. So one is like a deep dive with a small amount of people. And the other one are some really broad brush strokes with a large amount of people. Um, and that's working really well, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is I have a really low boredom threshold. And so I need a constant sort of change and variety in my life to keep me buoyant and uh, being the best, best version of me too. So working in the area of anxiety, there can't yeah. be the many people that suffer with that, surely. <laughs> it's, well, should I say one of my, um, probably no, the biggest passion that I would love to make a difference in the world is getting over this fallacy that anxiety is a bad thing. If we didn't have anxiety, then we'd be in a bad place because the whole road of fear is to keep us alive. It's a survival technique. And it only becomes detrimental when anxiety starts ruling you rather than you being in control of the anxiety. And it really is. It's a bit like that sort of um, metaphor of who's wagging the dog. Is it the dog or is the dog wagging the tail or is the tail wagging the dog? 
And that's very much the same with anxiety. We all have anxiety, but when you're in control of it, it's not a problem. It actually helps you to perform at a better level. But if you know the anxiety starts controlling you, that's when people start to say, I am suffering. And is this a modern day issue, Caroline, that we've that has evolved, or has anxiety been acting in this way throughout millennia? As I say, it's part of our survival instinct. So it goes right the way back to when we were cavemen. And in fact, psychologically, the way our brains are programmed is still very similar to being in cavemen. It's part of that very primitive fight or flight response. So when we have that feeling where your heart is racing and your palms are all clammy and you know your, your tummy is doing a, a, you know, 100 degrees you know, flip-flops, that is all adrenaline. That's part of that fight or flight response, which is exactly the same as our Neanderthal cousins would have been experiencing. What I would say has caused a difference now is there's a lot more stimuli. So people, uh, you know, I work an awful lot with teenagers and uh, I would argue that the huge rise in teenage anxiety that has escalated phenomenally in the last sort of 20 years is largely down to social media. And that's not saying social media is a bad thing. It serves a lot of positive purposes too, but it is the creator of a lot of anxiety, especially amongst the youngsters. And you know, without going back to that you know, C word, the COVID, obviously that created a lot of anxiety as people's worlds suddenly shrunk. So we talk a lot about comfort zone Comfort zone meaning when you are within that comfort zone, you understand how things work. And suddenly people's comfort zone shrunk because their comfort zone was restricted to being at home, not driving, not socialising. So when you started to step back outside of that comfort zone, people were experiencing anxiety, which is absolutely appropriate because that anxiety is there to help you perform and grow that comfort zone. But it's a period of discomfort while you do that. So social media has evolved in itself from when it first started coming out. And it's now that connectedness. It's now an ability to to connect with people from across the world with similar interests and Mm -hmm. similar ways of of working. And also the, the awareness and the immediacy that we have now of messages spreading. And as you said, you know, we're now exposed to so much information in a day. I think... I can't remember the stat, but the, we 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 now see as much stimuli in a day than people would see in their lifetime before. Yeah. You know, it, it's just it's incredible to fathom. So, with all that information and understanding what is going to be of value to you and what's going to be detrimental, that's where the anxiety filter comes in. Is that is that right? I think it comes in from a number of different factors. So if you were to to go back quite a few years in time, we would be very much judging ourselves based on real people whom we knew. So if I went back to being in secondary school, you know, social media wasn't a thing then. And so I would judge, you know, myself against my, my peers, my other students, my friends, real people. And that didn't mean I didn't get anxious. That didn't mean I felt um, inadequate at times, but it was a relative judgment. Whereas now the teenagers in today's world are judging themselves against 
anyone in the world. And that, and often what they're judging themselves again isn't even real. It might be a photoshopped picture or a staged scenario. And that is a massive contributing factor to creating very low self-esteem. And let's go back one step yep. and talk about judgment mm-hmm. and how judgment features in our life. Yeah. Judgment, again, is, is one of our survival instincts. Cavemen would have been judging other people in their pack, in their tribe, because that is how we uh, analyze, how we interact with people. So again, judgment isn't a bad thing. The technique that I teach to all of my clients is to change the word judgment for opinion. It's a very subtle change, but it has a very profound impact psychologically. So we all have opinions. You know, let, let's not go down the political route, but it's an obvious one to, to step on. You know, whether you go to the, the blue side or the red side, it is just an opinion. It's not about right or wrong. And pin, people can sorry can discuss that opinion and have a discussion, but it doesn't change their self-esteem. Whereas with teenagers, the judgment is, you know, you're stupid, you're not pretty enough, you're not thin enough. They take that on board. Whereas when you change that for opinion, it gives them the opportunity to say, that's not true. I have a different opinion, which brings the self back into self-esteem. And so that subtle change of judgment into opinion tends to stop all the power being on the outside and allows that door to that inner reflection. How do you actually feel? What is true for you to be listened to and then reflected back? And I guess that then takes us into the next step, which is truth. What is Mm -hmm. truth? Truth is whatever you make it. Yeah, it's, it might sound like a bit of a flippant answer, but it is. It's, it is whatever we make it. So even as an individual, if I feel, I don't know, if I feel fat on one day, that is my truth. And it doesn't matter how much my husband or my friends will say, no, you look great. That is my truth on that day. But it may be completely different the next day because you create your own truth. And again, the empowerment of when you start to be accountable for your own truth puts you in a position where you can change it if it doesn't suit you. So when you're teaching teenagers, Caroline, how much of this is a revelation to them? Certainly the judgment and opinion. You can often see real light bulbs going on in their head when when you say that. When you challenge people and say, you know, you are accountable for that truth, that can prickle people. (laughs) Like, no, I don't think like that. Well, actually... Yeah, you do. And that actually is is the role of the therapist or a role of, I would say, a good therapist is to take people outside their comfort zone, make, make them look at things that are uncomfortable because it's in that discomfort that people grow. One of my favorite sayings is uh, an Einstein saying, if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. Therefore, if you want to do and feel something different, you need to behave in a different way. And so with with the teenagers, um, I do take them well and truly outside of their comfort zone. But in the therapeutic environment, there is that safety net that they feel safe in doing that. And it's uh, the same 
kind of concept, which is Einstein, and I'm not going to say the same, the exact words, but he, he says that you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that got you exactly. into that problem. So yeah. yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about the comfort zone and how you grow when you step outside it. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, the comfort zone is um, the parameters within which you know how things work. And it's actually a bit of a misnomer. Comfort zone doesn't necessarily mean it's comfortable. It means you understand the rules, you understand the modus operandi. So when you step outside of that comfort zone, there is a lack of understanding, a lack of unfamiliarity. And the only way to gain familiarity is to stay out there. But the reality is in our lifetimes, we have gone outside of our comfort zone so many times just in growing up. The first time our parents leave us, whether it's at nursery school, at play school, at at primary school, you are then outside of your comfort zone. So you'll see all those young children the first couple of days being quite upset. But a week in, they're very different because their comfort zone has grown. We then again do it when we go to middle school, when we go to secondary school, to uni, whatever it may be, the first job, the first driving lesson. We step outside our comfort zone and by doing it, we grow. And again, reflecting that on teenagers to say, um, in fact, it's a question I ask a lot of teenagers is what is the most difficult thing you learn to do? And the hint is you've done it by the by the age you're two in most situations. And the answer is learn to walk. the, The mental and neurological demands of getting all of your limbs in synchronicity alongside your hearing and your eyesight and all of those things to physically walk is the most challenging thing you will ever learn to do. And if you watch a toddler learning to walk, they get fall over, they get up, they fall over, they get up. They keep trying. They stay in that discomfort and crack it. And if you can do that by the age of the two, whatever you're facing now, as long as you stay outside of your comfort zone and you keep picking yourself up and you keep learning and you do it different, you will grow your comfort zone. You will grow. So to grow and to learn are our default purpose in, in life. And that's and that's what we, we're, we're sort of programmed to do. Some people do it at different paces than others. Yeah. You haven't got a default purpose. You've got more than that. Share with us what it is that you are focusing on. Um, oh, that's an interesting one. I would I would say actually, yes, it is my default purpose. I love to grow. Um, I take a lot of my lessons from nature. And again, one of the sort of very basic things of nature is things are either growing or they're dying. So I'm going to carry on growing for as long as I possibly can. And the more you grow, the easier it is to grow. And that's a whole topic for another conversation that I could waffle on about for a very long time. But I love growing. But I also love helping other people to grow. So it's not for me to say, well, everyone's going to be like me and be jumping out of planes and bungee jumping and doing whatever it may may I want to decide I'm going to do that day. But the opposite is, do you want to stagnate, which leads you very quickly to dying? That growth may be very small steps. That's absolutely fine. Or it may be like me taking massive leaps all of the time. Anywhere in between is absolutely fine. My role is to help people who want to grow, but the anxiety is stopping them from doing it. 
So plane, uh, jumping out of planes, bungee jumping, is that something that you do a lot? Yeah. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did, I did a tandem parachute jump um, a few years ago now because that was that was really testing my anxiety because I had this perception. I um, If we look at it another angle, I hate that feeling when your um it's like some of the uh, fairground attractions where your tummy ends up in your mouth you know when you suddenly drop and I just thought oh my goodness doing that for like two minutes when you're free falling that would be my idea of hell and then someone said to me oh you muppet Caroline because you don't do it vertically you do it horizontally it's like oh okay well, let's go bungee jump let's go and do a parachute jump then and it's one of the most amazing experiences I've ever done I've done um three different bungee jumps of different heights I've done uh, I've been up in a glider um I've for my 40th birthday my husband bought me a um a ride in it's one of the airplanes that the red devils learn to fly in so they do the, all the acrobatic stuff and the loop the loop and the most magical moment was when this guy said to me you have control do a barrel roll <laughs> yay <laughs> so yeah so i i love seeing just how far I can I can push um, and overcome those anxieties because I know through years of experience now the other side of that anxiety is a phenomenal feeling of knowing you've achieved something. And it doesn't have to be that you have to throw yourself outside of a plane to get that other side of the feeling. It can literally be something really small for you, but um, huge for someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And so coming back to this comfort zone, a very simple kind of let's take it down to basic maths. If your comfort zone is a meter by a meter, you've got a meter square. If you take a step out of it, your comfort zone is then two meters by two meters. But that's quite a big step to go from one meter to two meters. That takes a huge amount of energy. But you've then got a four meter square comfort zone. Then if you go from two meters to three meters, that's still a meter, but it's less proportionally than what you've already done. You've now got a nine meter square comfort zone. And so it goes on to go from four to three is easier than to go from one to two. But each time the comfort zone is getting proportionally bigger than the effort you took to make that step. So it doesn't matter where your comfort zone is to start off with. The first step you take out is going to be big for you. And the way to do it is to recognize how much bigger your comfort zone will be for taking that step. So my comfort zone is kind of like 200 by 200 now. So for me to go 200 to 201, it's relatively small. It doesn't take that much for me. But for someone else, that may be huge because they're still down at three. So to go for three for 201 looks like it's phenomenal. It's all relative. Yeah, I was going to say it comes back to that relativity again. So share with me why anxiety? How did you come across this particular topic? How did that manifest? Because anxiety was the thing that was holding me back for a very long time. Yeah, I have missed out on so much in my younger life because of anxiety. I didn't go to university because I was too scared you know, that was too big a step out of my comfort zone at the time. I was quite a talented gymnast, but taking that step from the level was, uh, that I was at to becoming an England level um, gymnast 
was too big. So I lost that opportunity and many, many other things that I could say. And if I can stop another teenager from experiencing that disappointment, because now those opportunities will never come again. I will never have the chance to be an Olympic gymnast. Arguably, I probably could, could go to university, but it'd be a very different experience now than it would have been when I was 18. Yeah. So it is really from that reflection, I, I recognize how much I missed. And so I would love to make sure that people had the tools and the techniques and the confidence to keep stepping out of their comfort zone for as long as they choose to. So from these lost opportunities and these regrets in some perspective that you have of the disappointments that you you feel now and in retrospect, they were decisions that you made and for whatever reason, you didn't pursue that avenue. And I'm a great believer in sliding doors that you go on the path for for different reasons. And, Mm -hmm. And as a result of those lost opportunities, you're now making sure that other people find those opportunities have you got some examples of of people who have incredible stories that have you've helped them on their journey towards yeah there's there's a number of clients that I've worked with that um that stick in my mind one very simple phobias phobias are a very acute anxiety that's focused on something specific And there was um, a lady that I worked with. She was in her mid-50s that had a very acute phobia of birds. So she couldn't go outside in the summer for the risk that a bird may flow down in the the, the search for a crumb. And so all summer she would be sitting inside. And that was having a big impact on her family, her marriage and everything, because everyone else had to sit inside with her. And it went back to um, an, an experience as a baby where she was put outside in the garden and a crow landed on the handlebar of the pram. And again, it comes back to that biology. Anxiety is there to keep you safe. So as that tiny baby, in that internalized moment, the bird was scary because that baby couldn't do anything about it. And nothing in her psychology had changed. Every time she saw a bird, that fight or flight instinct was triggered. Her brain then went, okay, you've run away from the bird, therefore it must be appropriate. And that link was still running. And through the work that we do, so hypnotherapy is the main therapeutic tool I use. We overcame, we introduced sort of new information to that memory. She woke up, she opened her eyes, she looked at me and she went, find me a pigeon. (laughs) It's like, find a pigeon when you need one. But her phobia was cured within an hour and a half session. And phobias is something I love working with because they can be so phenomenally debilitating, but they are so relatively easy to overcome. And I'm curious because she was a baby. Did she remember the crow or was it something that she'd been told happened and then formed? Yeah. All of your memories are stored away in what I refer to as the database in the subconscious part of the mind. And the higher the level of emotion that's attached to that memory, the easier it is to access. And the more it is related to your survival, the more easy it is to access. And the fact that a phobia is there means that you have a memory that's being triggered all of the time. Therefore, it's relatively easy to access. It's just a technique that few people are taught how to do to really get to them. And we're we're not actually born with phobias. We 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 adopt them as we go on in life. Yeah, phobias phobias are created in two ways: either through learned behaviour, 
And that's one of the reasons that arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, is one of the highest because children will copy normally mum in that instance. And that baby is saying, well, every time mummy sees that little multi-legged thing running across the floor, she screams and runs away. So therefore, that's what you must do. So that's a learned behavior or the other mechanism is through trauma. So, for example, um, a lot of people, if they are in a very turbulent flight, will then find it very hard to fly afterwards. Or if they're in a car accident, will be, have a phobic reaction to driving thereafter. Yeah. Well, in our house, it's me who has to remove spiders because yeah. and the kids have kids have learned it from my husband there's an yeah. arachnid in the bathroom amy come and sort it out <laughs> <laughs> I, they don't bother me but, but yeah. you know it's funny isn't it it is as you say it is learned and so i, I tried to explain to the children that they it wasn't going to hurt them but john's phobia was obviously too strong to yeah and to... i'm sure your husband knows intellectually that that spider in your bathroom isn't going to hurt him yeah. But because the you know, psychological or subconsciously that association is still high, when the fight or flight instinct is triggered, the conscious mind is bypassed, the subconscious get away, get away from the spider is, is what ends up happening. And he blames Peter Parker from <laughs> Spider-Man. So <laughs> honestly, it, it, but yes, so phobias are fascinating and, and they are learned or, or come from a trauma. And we've talked about anxiety, we've talked about judgment, we've talked about truth, we've talked about incredible ways of reframing that judgment to opinion. Yeah. What else is driving this mission for you to help people to not have those lost opportunities? In the same way that the learned behavior can have a negative impact, so as you know, a man's phobia can then impact on the children, if you turn this the other way, people that have a positive relationship with anxiety will then teach their children to have a positive relationship with anxiety. And I believe in a very long term, this is one of the best ways of resolving many of the problems that are in the world at the moment. You know, people will um, turn to alcohol, to drugs, to smoking, as a way of trying to numb anxiety, to almost get themselves out of their head. Anxiety as an energy, when it is being triggered, puts the body under a huge amount of stress. So there's a lot of physiological illnesses that are related to high levels of anxiety. So again, reduce anxiety, that can massively reduce the burden on the NHS. It can have an impact on crime rates, because when people are outside of their comfort zone, they will often you know, go down different roads to try and get back into a place of comfort. So whilst I'm not a kind of, you know, single, single person trying to change the world, if I can make a small difference, then that's got to be a good thing. Oh, indeed. And and it is so true just how big the ripple effects can be on solving the one person. And yeah. there's there's a phrase of people don't think that as an individual you can make a difference, but I disagree. Uh, I think as an individual, you, you can make a huge amount of difference because of, as you said, the ripple effects and, and the various different avenues of you resolving somebody's anxiety means it's not going to manifest and, and get bigger. And, and it's not going to then, as you say, have burdens on multiple different 
areas such as the NHS or or in crime or, or whatever. And, and again, the responsibilities of a parent to be because you know stress gets passed on to child in Absolutely. pregnancy and 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 then beyond. Yeah, and sometimes it's really little things, but it makes such a difference. So languages, language patterns are really important because what you say, you also hear. So I've got four words, four phrases that I've done my best to take out of my language. And one of them is try. And actually, I've nicked this from Yoda. I can't take any credibility whatsoever. (laughs) It's either do or do not. Do not try. And so um, whenever I hear my kids say, I'm going to I'm going to try and clean my bedroom tonight. Oh, yeah, right. That's not going to happen then, is it? So whenever I hear try, for one, I know it's not going to happen, but I then reflect it back and say, no, don't try and clean your bedroom. Are you going to clean your bedroom or are you not? Make a decision and then be accountable for that decision. And there was a lovely moment where my daughter had got a load of friends around and they were all sitting at the kitchen table eating. And a friend of her said, oh, I'm going to try and, I can't remember what the context was, I'm going to try and do X, Y, Z. And Nadia, without even catching a breath, just looked at her and said, don't try. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? And then she sort of like, oh, looked at me. <laughs> it's like, oh, my goodness. So me having passed it on to Nadia, she was automatically telling it to her friends. But what was lovely is her friend just went, do you know, actually, you're right. I really don't want to do it. And there was suddenly that kind of congruency. I don't want to do it. So I'm not going to try. And I'm accountable for that decision of not wanting to do it. And you could see her whole body language and um, and just vibration just kind of solidified make that decision I'm good with that decision I love that and what were the other ones Caroline you said there were four so that's yeah there are four so try should should is a very close cousin of try you know I should go out for a run tonight but I'm not going to um and but is the third should and but are often in the same sentence and then the third uh, sorry the fourth one is make me you make me angry no No one can make you have a feeling. Yeah, I can make you have pain by pushing you over, but I can't make you angry. And the evidence behind that is if I was to tell a room full of people a joke, I can't make them laugh. Some people will laugh. Some people might crack a rib. Some people might chortle. Some people might find it offensive. They choose their response. And again, when you take back that responsibility for your response to someone else's behavior, you're back in a place of control. And control and anxiety are the opposite ends of the spectrum. When you're in control, there is very little anxiety. When you're out of control, there's a high level of anxiety. So the fundamental basis of a lot of the work that I do with people is what can you do to feel more in control? And can you remember, Caroline, when you learnt about this for the first time, how you felt understanding that it was all about you making the choice to feel and respond in the way that you are, you have done? I think for myself, I can't remember the exact moment, but I think for myself, it's very similar to other people when they make that connection as well. It is very empowering, but no longer am I a victim of anyone else's behaviour. So if someone says, again, their judgment being, you know, you're fat, you're ugly, you're useless, you can decide if that is your truth. You are taking back the control for your response. The flip side of that is you then become very accountable. 
So I now know that when I you know, fall down a dark hole, which everyone does sometimes, and I'm sitting there having a big dose of, oh, poor me, is actually I've put myself down here. And so that then is the accountability. So get yourself back out again. So responsibility or the ability to respond is mm-hmm. key. Responsibility, accountability, they are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if someone says something to me, I can retaliate in kind. And again, I I talk a lot in metaphors. I said it's a bit like a a tennis match. So I can serve the ball with the intention of having a nice, gentle rally. But as soon as the ball has left my racket, I've lost control. I've got no idea how that ball is going to come back at me. So I have to wait. The ball comes back at me. It might come back nice and gently. Perfect. I can respond. We have that nice rally. But someone else may smash it back at me. As soon as that ball comes back over the net, again, I'm back in control. Do I smash it back at them in like? Do I knock it back gently with the intention of, come on, let's play nicely. Let's have that nice rally. But ultimately, if it keeps getting smashed back, I can choose. I can just put my racket down and walk off the court. I choose. And in that choice, you're back in a position of control. You're not responsible for that other person's way of playing. You're responsible and accountable for how you choose to respond to it. It's funny. You just reminded me of a book that we used to sit down with the kids for ages with, and it's called You Choose. Right. And it's it's just pages, blank pages of different scenarios with lots of different options and and lots of places so it was like one of them was loads of pictures of different places so and we would just sit there and say where would you like to be and there was mountains or there was a seaside or there was a desert or whatever and then there was a whole thing of clothes and there was a whole thing of foods and it was really interesting because it what it it taught the children is that they then had a choice in their thoughts in in their desires and they also saw how different other people's choices were that they weren't always a case of they all wanted the ice cream or they all wanted to be on the ski slope you know and it was really interesting what I'm hearing here is that you know you are responsible for your own choices but you also have the the it's a luxury to have those choices Mm -hmm. too yeah yeah And, and that's very true um, and a lot of people, their anxiety comes back to the perception that they have no choice. The reality is often those choices are not easy ones. There is, you know, the regular rock and hard place scenario, but you still have choice. And the more you recognize that choice, the more you are stepping back to that place of control. When you feel you have no choice, that is extreme vulnerability. Then you will be very anxious. And it comes back to something you said right at the beginning, Caroline. You said that the comfort zone isn't always comfortable, Correct. Uh, but people understand the the levels of discomfort within that comfort zone. So they say, "Well, I'd rather stay here and be uncomfortable than move into the unknown." Yeah, that's because where the, com- the-, the comfort is the knowing how it works. So again, I don't know the exact statistic, but it's a highly recognised um, fact that a lot of women in very dysfunctional relationships, when they are rescued, perhaps spend some time in a hostel, will go back to a violent relationship because they understand how violent relationships work. 
What they don't understand is what a loving relationship works. So they go back to what they know. And that's the key. It's understanding how it works, which is why, again, many people will stay in jobs that they absolutely hate because they understand how it works. To go outside of that comfort zone into a job that they don't understand how it works, for them, in that moment, they don't feel they can do. So they stay where it is comfortable. Hence, I say it is a bit of a misnomer. It's not about being comfortable. It's about understanding how it works. Yeah. And, and this is what I love about the podcast, Focus on Why, and why I bring together people to share their purpose, why they're doing what they're doing, because each one has, there's a message, you know, your message is is fantastic today in, in sharing that anxiety is not a bad thing. It, it oh. is also there to serve us. And that's a great message in itself, but there've been other things that you've shared. But from my perspective, what I'm trying to achieve with this show is to help people who are feeling that they don't have a choice, that they are limited in their options, that they do. They do have a choice and they do have these options and that their life purpose is that it's their responsibility to pursue their life purpose, that it's not just suddenly going to be found on the side of the sofa. It's it's something that they have to create. They have mm-hmm. to actually take the responsibility and be accountable for it. Yeah. And again, in uh, in a therapeutic environment, making or helping someone to become aware that the situation they're in in that moment is the result of all of the choices they've made up until that point. Back to Einstein, start to make different choices you're going to have a different experience. So it's, you know, the the brain, the mind is a absolutely phenomenal thing. But I believe very strongly that nothing is cast in stone. Personally, I don't believe there is some great blackboard in the sky where fate is decreed. We can choose how we feel in the moment at any moment. And as I said, sometimes the choices aren't easy ones, but there is always a choice and each choice if it's different from the one you made before will lead on to another different choice and you keep taking steps whether those are tiny little baby steps or whether they're giant ones you will still move away from where you are in that moment when you make a different choice well, I'm hoping that people will make the choice to reach out and connect with you, Caroline, because I'm sure they would love to follow more of what you're sharing. So what's the best way to reach out and and connect with you on social media? So um, there is an awful lot of stuff on my website, which is very easy to remember because it's just my name, carolinecavener.co.uk. And in there, there's links to YouTube. So I put on lots of videos that share different tips and techniques There's lots of um, free downloadable resources that you can use to to help yourself. And there's also a link to my book, Anxiety Alchemy, which again contains a huge amount of, um, it's it's like a five-step process to how to move yourself from a place of anxiety to a place of um, resilience. Um, So yeah, website is probably the best place to go. And then all the social media that you love and you can link to from there. Fabulous. Well, they'll all be in the show notes so people can find those easily. So thank thank you. Again, wow, thank you so much for sharing why you do what you do, Caroline. It's been an absolute delight hearing your journey. And my goodness, you know, I I feel that uh, if you had conquered that anxiety as a teenager, I don't know what you'd be jumping out of right now. (laughs) Goodness, but all good, all good. Landings have all been safe so far. Uh, Do you have some final words, please? 
And it's the one thing that I would say, and um, it, it's in the front of my mind, I think, because I did a video on it this morning, is anxiety feels like a ceiling above your head, that you, it's stopping you from growing, it's holding you back. But the person standing on the floor above you is standing on exactly the same structure, but it's a platform of confidence. So if you have a ceiling, get someone who has already worked out how to get to the next floor to tell you how to do it whether that's a therapist, whether that's a friend, whoever has already managed to do what you are struggling to do can help your ceiling become your floor. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.